So today, uh, today we're finishing up uh, this uh, sort of section of 1 Corinthians, chapters 8 through 10, which, uh, which throw up some weird stuff, uh, but you think this is weird, just wait until we get to next week. Um, but we're wrapping this, this section up that we began uh, with chapter 8 when Scott Slater was here preaching to us in January. You'll recall in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about the question of meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, I'm sure that's an ethical issue that each of us uh, has pressing on a daily basis. Um, Of course, it isn't, but there probably are equivalents to it. What was going on in Corinth was, Corinth was, of course, a pagan city. It was a city in the Roman Empire, um, and uh, it it had, uh, like major Roman cities did, it had all these temples to different gods, and among the things that people did in these temples, uh, one of the more mentionable things that people did in these temples was sacrificing animals in the course of seeking the favor or at least trying to avoid the wrath of these gods. What that meant was that if you wanted to buy meat, um, unless you were uh, following a, uh, for example, uh, if you're following kashrut, if you're Jewish, you wouldn't have bought Uh, meat this way. You would have uh, had it slaughtered yourself or done it yourself, but most people bought meat at basically the butcher shop, which was next door to the temple, because that's where the meat was being uh, being produced. And so most people, if you wanted meat, you would simply go to the butcher shop next to the temple. And so uh, as as we remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians in response to a number of questions that they've raised to him uh, and also, frankly, in response to some things he's hearing about what's going on in Corinth. And so uh, it, what was going on uh, with, with the meat sacrificed to idols is that there were some people, evidently, who were eating meat had, that had been sacrificed to idols, and there were others who were horrified that that was going on. So he says, as for meat sacrificed to idols, chapter 8, verse 4, uh, I'm a little hot, Dan, can you turn me down a bit, thanks. We know that an idol is nothing at all in this world. We know. We know there's only one God, idols, pagan gods. We know that they're nonsense. We know that they're, that they're foolish. This is, of course, nothing new. This is not an innovation on Paul's part. Paul, of course, is working within the, the strong monotheism of the Jewish faith where, uh, all, where, where many of the prophets will make fun of people who worship sticks and rocks. Uh, the, the great story the rabbis tell about Abraham uh, is that uh, Abraham was uh, the, uh, uh, the sort of the first great monotheist. And the, the way the rabbis tell the story, his father Terah was an idolater. Uh, and, and one day Abraham uh, went into his father's idol shop. Not only was he an idolater, he sold them. One day uh, Abraham went in and he destroyed all of the idols. Absolutely just, just wrecked them all except for one, and he put a really big stick in the hand of the one idol that was left. And his father comes in and says, what happened? Abraham says, well, I guess that one idol must have really been mad at the rest of them. He beat them all up. Terah's like, what are you talking about? These are just rocks and sticks. And Abraham's been like, why is anybody worshiping them? They had a complicated relationship. So, 
we know, Paul says, we know an idol is nothing at all. We know there's no God but one, and, but, but not everybody knows this. Right? Obviously, not everybody knows because some people are worshiping these false gods. And some people are so accustomed to the worship of idols that when they eat food that's been sacrificed to idols, they're thinking about the fact that it was sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, then their conscience is defiled. In other words, their conscience is violated. They are scandalized if they eat this meat, even though we know an idol is nothing, even though people who, who have a proper theological understanding of this know that there's, there's nothing going on, the people who are still growing into that have a hard time with it. The fact is, food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we eat. We're no better if we do. That's not the point. But So be careful, Paul says. This is chapter 8, verse 9. Be careful that the exercise of your freedom doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. See, if somebody with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what's been sacrificed to idols? I need to do something that he knows he shouldn't do. And, and as we talked about uh, last week, it seems that not only did we have a situation in Corinth where people were eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but it may well be that some people were participating in the service, in the, 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 the ceremonies by which this meat was sacrificed. So you may have had somebody who knows perfectly well that there's no such thing as an idol, and they get invited to a dinner, and the dinner begins in the idol temple, and everybody sort of sacrifice to, you know, stands around politely while the sacrifice happens, and then they go off to somebody's home to, to have dinner. Well, you could have somebody there, maybe somebody else, somebody's slave who wouldn't want to be in the temple, but they're somebody's slave, so they have to be, and they're part of the church, and they're scandalized by what their master is doing in this idol's temple, and now they see somebody who's in the church with them, and they're standing around this altar, sacrificing meat to an idol? That could be a problem. This weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. The fact that you know better is wrecking somebody else. And when you sin against your brothers in this way, when you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So just because you have the proper theological understanding, just because you know that an idol is nothing, just because you know nothing's going on, if you scandalize your brother or sister, you are sinning not only against them, you're sinning against Christ. So Paul says, look, if, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I won't eat meat again because I don't want to cause him to fall. And then here in chapter 10 at the end, starting in verse 23, he says, everything is permissible. And, and here Paul is probably quoting to them a slogan, quite likely a slogan that he had taught them. They're probably saying, well, Paul, you said everything's permissible. Paul's like, yes, I did. And it's true that you can do, you can do anything. A Christian's freedom means that you have a great deal of liberty, but not everything is a good idea, right? Everything is permissible, yes. As a, as a theological fact, I have the liberty, I have the freedom to eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, 
but it may not be edifying. That's constructive is how the NIV put it. But not everything builds up. Not everything is going to uh, enhance the health of the church. People shouldn't be seeking their own good. They should be seeking the good of others. If all you're doing is seeking your own good when you exercise your liberty, when you do things that you're free to do, you're missing the point. We need to be looking out for others. As Bono said, we get to carry each other. So eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. There's no need to go into the meat market and say, was this sheep sacrificed to the idol uh, and was this not? Just go ahead. It's not a big deal. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? So everything God created is good. As he says in First Timothy, nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer, right? So there's nothing at all wrong with this. You don't have to ask any questions about it. But if an, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal, here's the thing. And if you want to go, then go ahead and eat whatever they put before you. You don't have to raise questions of conscience, even if it's chilled monkey brains, as in the picture from Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom. Anybody remember that? Anybody have love for the 80s? Thank you. Eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anybody says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. You're going to... And he, he says, do that for the sake of the person who told you, because obviously if a person is telling you this has been offered in sacrifice, either they're testing you or they're really proud of the fact that it was offered in sacrifice and you're going to give them the wrong impression if you eat it. But you're also going to do it for the sake of conscience, not for your own conscience. Your own conscience is not affected with this, but for the conscience of anybody who is there and sees what's going on. After all, why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? And here Paul is, is saying the sort of thing that he says a number of times. I mentioned the passage in 1 Timothy. Probably the place that he, he says this the most strongly is in, uh, in, the, in Colossians. In his letter to the Colossians in chapter 2, he says, therefore don't Let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Don't let anybody judge you with regard to how you handle religious festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath days, whether you you decide you want to keep the Sabbath or not, entirely up to you. Don't let anybody judge you for that. These are shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, of course, is found in Christ. So don't let anyone who delights in false humility... And the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about the things he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's talking here about people who, who are, are so sure that they've, they've got everything sorted out, that they have every right and responsibility to tell you how you're supposed to live. They go into great detail about why they think that they have such spiritual superiority to everybody else. But they've actually lost their connection with the head, the Christ, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, 
grows as God causes it to grow. These are people who've just worked out their rules, worked out their way of living, worked out the things that are that they think are important, and they're they're so convinced that they're right that they're going to tell you. Kind of like the question my, my friend Brent asks. If you have a vegan doing CrossFit, which one are they going to tell you about first? Right? But since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, why do you submit to its rules? Rules like, oh, don't handle that, don't taste that, don't touch that. These are all destined to perish with use. They're based on human commands and teachings. These regulations have an appearance of wisdom. Obviously, there's something about them that makes people want to follow them. They they have that self-imposed worship. They have that false humility. Again, Paul's saying it, it seems like it's humble, but it really isn't. It's arrogance, not humility, and the harsh treatment of the body. But they're useless when it comes to restraining sensual indulgence. Not only is it theologically off, it doesn't even work. But Paul says, look, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, there's no reason for me to be denounced because of something that I thank God for. I have that freedom in Christ. I have that liberty. Period, point blank, I have it. But the question is how I exercise that liberty. I have that freedom, but because I have that freedom, I have the responsibility to exercise that freedom. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. Don't cause anyone to stumble. Jews, Greeks, the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, because I'm not seeking my own good, Paul said. I'm seeking the good of many. And here he's echoing what he says back in chapter 9 when he says that to, to those, uh, that, that even though I am free, even though I am free, Paul says, I am free, I belong to nobody, but I make myself a slave to everybody that I might win as many as possible. So to the Jews, I lived like a Jew in order to win the Jews. When Paul went and, 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 and stayed with Jews, whether they be believers in Christ or not, he would keep kosher. We, we hear the story in Acts where he followed the, 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 uh, the Nazarite vow that we find in Numbers, where he, you know, he, he uh, uh, shaved his head and uh, did things in, in, in strict accordance with, with Torah, as he certainly knew well how to do. He says to those under the law, those under Torah, I became like one under Torah, even though I didn't have to. I, I lived that way so as to win those who are under Torah. To those who didn't have Torah, I became like one not having Torah. So when Paul went to Athens, he talked to them about their, their quoted their pagan poets. To, to those not having Torah, I became like one not having Torah, though I'm not free. Of course, I am not free from God's Torah. I'm under Christ's Torah. I follow Christ. But the point was so that I could win those not having Torah. I lived in a way they'd be comfortable with. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. If there are people who were utterly scandalized by the idea that I might eat meat that would be sacrificed to an idol, then I, I went veg. I, I didn't have to, but I did for the sake of of being able to get a hearing with them. 
so that by all possible means I may save some. And I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I think what Paul is saying overall is whatever you do, do it for a purpose. Do it for a reason. That reason being God's glory. That reason being the furtherance of the kingdom. And he says, follow my example as I follow Christ's example. If you follow Christ's example, you're going to make some people mad. Paul doesn't say you can't make people mad. You look at what Jesus did. Jesus healed somebody who had been uh, disabled for decades. And he did not wait a few hours until Sabbath was over to heal that person. It would have been really easy when Jesus encountered this person who was disabled to say, look, it's the Sabbath. Some people are going to get kind of grumpy if I heal your disease. It seems kind of ridiculous, but some people don't think that I should heal on the Sabbath. So um, we, you know, hang out, you know, we'll have a cup of coffee, and then when, when, the, when the, the sun goes down, then I'll heal you, and everybody will be fine. No, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus walked right up, he, and he heals a person. And people, are, people who are so worried about the Sabbath are outraged, so they get together to try to figure out how they can get him killed. This is how they're honoring the Sabbath. They're not going to heal anybody, but they are going to collude to get somebody killed. No, Jesus, I'd love that, that passage in Matthew's gospel where his disciples come to him, don't, don't you know how offended the Pharisees are by, by what you're saying? And Jesus is like, ask me if I care. Seriously. That's their problem. So it doesn't mean that you aren't going to, to do things that, that bother some folks, but there's a difference between doing things that bother people because they have to get broken out of ways of thinking that are thoroughly contrary counter to God and to his kingdom and being gracious and kind to somebody who is still trying to catch up. We have to be wise in, in uh, free speech jurisprudence. There's talk of time, place, and manner restrictions. So you're free to say things, but there's some times and places and ways that you can't say anything. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? You can talk about fire in most places. You can say fire. You can probably even yell it. But if you're in a crowded theater and you yell fire, there's going to be a stampede and some people are going to get hurt. Uh, Unless, of course, there is a fire, in which case you should yell fire in a crowded theater. But we, we can be wise in the way that we act. And that means being wise with regard to everybody, with regard to those who are outside the church, whether they be Jew or Greek, being wise toward our brothers and sisters. We have to, I think in order to do that, we have to be able to adjust our thinking so that we care about the things that we're supposed to care about and we resolutely don't care about the things that we should not be caring about. And it's kind of a discipline to developing that. Because often we will instinctively want to react if somebody is getting all upset about something. Sometimes we will instinctively want to say, whoa, okay, obviously there's a problem here. And, and we should be alert. But what that, what, when Paul says, I'm not going to let anybody judge me, what he's saying is I am not for a second going to abandon the truth 
the reality, the very sense of what it means to be free in Christ, that I am free in Christ. I am not for a second going to abandon the fact that I have liberty. But I'm also not going to abandon the fact that I'm responsible to exercise that in a way that builds up and doesn't tear down. So somebody else doesn't like the fact that I have liberty in Christ. I'm not going to let that bother me. I'm really, I'm not going to let that worry me. I know that I do, but I'm going to be wise about the way I do it. And to do it in love. Genuine love toward the other people that we are in relationship with because we don't live all by ourselves. When we exercise our liberty in Christ, we do so in the context of relationships. We do so in the context of community. Now that word scandalon, which means stumbling block, uh, that's where we get the word scandalize. But as somebody who has a busted knee, I can tell you that uh, it is a different experience walking around with somebody who is attentive to the fact that I have a weakness and walking around with somebody who is not. I had the opportunity last week to shadow a, a delegate in, in Annapolis. Uh, and this is somebody who's, um, you know, one of these healthy people, and so he's always taking the stairs. And, you know, I sort of had to ask him once or twice, you know, hey, could we do, you know, I used to take the elevator because I'm lazy, but now I take it because I'm crippled. Um, and sometimes he remembered and sometimes he didn't. And, you know, he, I, I was his guest, so I just sort of went along and I, you know, basically held onto the handrail and prayed that I wouldn't fall and break something. Um, it's not something he has to worry about. He doesn't have to worry about his knees giving out, but I do. And so if he's going to be courteous, if he's going to be attentive, if he's going to be loving when he's with me, then he's going to keep that in mind when he decides which route he takes to get from one hearing room to the next. And likewise, you know, some of us, really not a big deal what you order to drink with dinner, but for some people that's going to be a big problem. And if you know that, then you behave accordingly. I think about Scott Slater, who is here, who's in recovery. He talks about how much he appreciates it if he's out with a group when he notices that there are some people who, even though they could order a drink before dinner, they just get something non-alcoholic because they don't want him to be the only person who, who isn't ordering a cocktail. It's a way of showing kindness and love and making sure that he's not feeling like he's the odd man out. There are ways that we can do this in ways that are kind and loving. It takes discernment and we're going to mess it up. But the point is that we have to do all that we do in love. We have this freedom which is precious, which Christ has purchased for us. But we have to exercise it wisely, lovingly, as the Spirit guides us and enables us to do so. And that's important for the sake of Christ's reputation. But it's especially important, as Paul's talking about here, and as he's going to continue to talk about in this next part of 1 Corinthians, where it really gets weird, for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ, for the sake of the health of the church, it's vitally important that we be caring for each other. Because we are one, though we're not the same.
and we get to carry each other. Amen.